Hello and welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I am an affiliate and Wesley Fellow at the Forum. Um, today, my guest is Anton Haus. Anton is a historian of innovation. Uh, he's currently head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network, which is a UK-based think tank focused on encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship. Anton is also a historian in residence at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Hello, Anton. Hello, thanks for having me. We're very, very excited to have you. Anton, why is innovation so important? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question in, in some ways. Innovation is important because contrary to popular belief, you know, the, the world has for the past few hundred years been getting significantly better on a number of metrics mm -hmm. in terms of living standards, in terms of wealth, in terms of healthcare. In, I mean, in general terms, even in terms of the kind of beauty and so on, aesthetic pleasure that we have access to, I mm. think all of those have been improving markedly. And nearly all of that comes down, frankly, to invention to innovation that people have for the past few hundred years in a number of countries, but starting with the kind of real acceleration of this happening in Britain in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and particularly 19th centuries have been innovating more and more and more. They've been finding ways to make things more efficient, to make things better designed, to make things run better, run smoother, run faster, um, to be more beautiful, to smell better, to taste better, right? Anything you can think of, people have been trying to push out the technological frontier. They've been making things um, better. Now, better can be subjective, right? Sometimes it can be better weapons, or it can be something that you've made better in one respect that ends up causing climate change in another respect. Mm. And maybe a lot of these things will have unforeseen circumstance uh, consequences as well. But Ultimately, what people have been doing as part of that is they've been trying to make things better. And that has had dramatic results, right? Our society today would be unrecognizable to someone from 1600. I mean, they would, they would lose like, their mind almost immediately, I think. Like, <laughs> imagine, imagine James I, right? Who, James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England. Let's transport him from 1604 when he's crowned at the moment of his coronation you know, a person who has lived in luxury for their entire lives, and we just transport them to the middle of a major city, mm. even in the middle of a pandemic where there's hardly anyone around. I mean, I think the sheer number of people would be one of the most immediately impressive things. Um, but they would, you know, they would immediately see glass in quantities they've never seen. They would see cement, which they've never seen before. They would see plastic bins with plastic being something they've never seen before with the fact that you can just throw something away in a little... Thing on the street and they will come and pick it up the next day like all of these things are the product of human ingenuity at some point in the in the past and then people improving upon that as well so in many ways you know the reason to look at invention the reason to look at innovation is to try and understand why it is that we've been getting so much wealthier so much richer mm -hmm. experiencing much much better living standards um, for all of this period um, and also to understand, you know, why it is that that suddenly only really started happening in the past few hundred years right. wasn't happening before. Now, that's not to say that there weren't inventors before the 16th century. Of course, there were. I mean, you know, you've got the you've got Sung Dynasty China is very famous for its inventors. You always hear this kind of trope of everything had already been invented in China. And that's not quite true. Um, certain forms of certain things had often been invented in the past, but not quite the same as the ones that are either independently reinvented or then developed upon those inventions later on. Um, but you had, of course, had inventors in the past, but we hadn't quite had this concentration of people, especially within a very short space of time in a very small space geographically as well, 
where we start to see this acceleration of invention. So mm -hmm. my work has been essentially all about trying to explain why it is that that, that acceleration starts happening. So when do you date this acceleration exactly? So initially, when I first started this, I thought that much like all of the literature that's written about the Industrial Revolution and so on, that it's probably in the 18th century. Right. Um, I now think that's completely wrong. And that actually a lot of this starts to really get going in probably the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. um, weirdly, the period where if I were to you know, crack open a book about the acceleration of innovation, where those periods are barely even mentioned at all. Hmm. Um, or where you know maybe people have heard of Francis Bacon, but I don't think they'll be able to mention they'll be able to even name off the top of their heads many other inventors in the same way that they could about the 18th and the 19th. So this has been the focus very recently of a lot of my research, trying to work out what happens in this particular period. And the other reason I, I like to point to that period is that if I were to you know if I were an extraterrestrial and I came to the world in 1540. And I was looking as a very advanced extraterrestrial with amazing technology to get me all the way to Earth. And I was looking for a place that would see a similar you know, acceleration of innovation that my planet must have had in the past mm. to get me to this period. The places I'd be looking at in the world would not include England. Mm -hmm. In 1540, you know, if I'm looking at urbanization, I think that's important. I would go to modern day Belgium or the Netherlands. If I was looking at just the biggest city in the world, I would look at Constantinople, or I'd go to China, for goodness sake. This is where the really, really mega cities are. If I was looking at things like um, state capacity, Spain, France, Italy, a whole other places are actually way up the rankings higher than, higher than um, England is. If I was just looking at pure te technological terms, England would look like a backwater. Mm. London is teeny tiny. We're talking about 50,000 people. I mean, that's a village today, practically, mm -hmm. in, in some parts of the world. I mean, even today in, in England, that's like barely a town, 50,000, um, versus the 200,000, 300,000 in some of the big cities elsewhere in the world. Right. Um, and the population as a whole is pretty teeny tiny. We're talking, you know, barely over 3 million, I think, at that point, if I remember it correctly. Um, and also just the technology available isn't very good, you know. England is a backwater when it comes to things like glassware, when it comes to metalwares, most of them, they're barely even exploiting their own copper deposits. Coal is already starting to pick up a bit, but it's not a major, major thing like it becomes later on. Um, they'd only just for the past hundred years been exporting um, woven cloth versus raw wool. Mm. I mean, in terms of proto-industrialization, it's barely getting there in the 1540s. And yet, Fast forward just to 1600, London has already started to grow quite dramatically. Fast mm -hmm. forward even a bit more to 1650, London is really standing out even internationally. Fast forward to 1700 and England already has a reputation within Europe and perhaps the wider world as well, but we don't have that many sources for the wider world, at least that we've looked at. But at least within Europe, people are saying, if you, wanna, if you want something improved, you go to England. That's mm. the place where it's really happening. It already has by 1700, long before the traditional Industrial Revolution period. That's you know often 1760 to 1830, 1780 right. to 1850. That sort of those sort of dates that get chucked around very mm. willy nilly. Um, by 1700, I think a lot of the major transformation has already taken place. So I think this is really interesting, right? Because it's exactly as you're saying. When people usually tell the story of extraordinary human improvement, they usually say of the last. 250 years or something yeah. like that. Anton, you're writing a book about where you're effectively studying a large sample of British or um, inventors that were located 
on the British Isles to try to discern what made them so inventive or, or um, some of their characteristics. Or, or your argument is that the, the improvement ultimately is the result of human ingenuity, invention, innovation. But you, you first have to ask in sort of an upstream question, right? Which is, okay, what changed, right? Like what all of a sudden uh, led to this dramatic improvement in, in invention and in innovation and in ingenuity? And why didn't it happen somewhere else? That's sort of the big question that is always asked in connection to the British Industrial Revolution. Um, what's your answer? So my answer is a little bit complicated. It comes in two parts. The first part is that one of the things I've noticed from my research is that one of the major, most important things about inventors is that before they became inventors, they knew other inventors. Mm-hmm. So invention, what I like to call actually more specifically, not just invention, so the practice of invention, but the underlying mental framework that you have to get to before you start working on stuff, what I like to call the improving mentality, right, spreads from person to person. So there's a kind of viral model here going on. So if we think of it as, you know, there had in the past been little epidemics of the improving mentality, some didn't see China, I mentioned, the Dutch Golden Age, perhaps, um, the Italian Renaissance, um, in particular fields often and not as widespread as it ends up being in England. So we have the improving mentality popping up little epidemics, and then we get a proper, proper outbreak in in England in the late 16th, early 17th centuries. And that actually starts spreading to the extent that Frankly, we're still living through it, right? If we look at, if we even look at the graphs going back and we just plot a log line, um, so accounting for the fact that the growth is exponential of GDP per capita growth in a country like Britain, all the way back to this, you know, 17th, 18th century, it's a straight line, right? Mm. There is very, very little in the way of interruption, regardless of whatever policy is going on. So something takes root and the same kind of thing happens then in France, in Germany, in the United States and more recently in South Korea, in, in, in Japan, it looks like China's heading the same way, India, now a lot of Africa as well, um, after interruptions from wars and so on, we're starting to see this thing spreading worldwide. And not just from the growth, which is the application of technologies, but the actual development of technologies as well. It's become a global affair. Now, so the improvement mentality spreads from person to person. The other aspect here is that a lot of the inventors are polymaths. So they're not necessarily just someone who is very skilled with textile machinery and tweaks textile machinery and makes it slightly more efficient. We're talking people who improve textile machinery and then they get bored of that and they hear about another problem in another industry and they start becoming metallurgists or they start improving watches or they start experimenting with with agriculture or something, right? There are lots and lots of cases of this. In fact, from my sample, which is just under 1500 people, and I keep I keep expanding it, which I shouldn't be doing, but I keep expanding it because I get a bit addicted to making it as large as possible. It's already the largest one of its kind, but I I keep making it larger. Um, The majority of them are polymaths in that regard. So not even polymaths in a general sense of are they inventors and something else? A lot of them are that as well. Um, But even just within the fact that they're inventors, are they improving multiple industries? So Mm. taking very, very broad definitions of what counts as an industry, where actually they're often even within this, to give you an example, you know, I, I might count someone who has an improvement to dentistry and to medicine just under medical still. So mm, even within those, we've probably got even more polymaths if we start to break it down even further. Um, so that's another aspect that's going on, which again suggests that there's something else going on that's not just skill-based, um, that's to do with this improving mentality, which means that they look at anything and everything as being mm. improvable, right? Of there being room for improvement there. Um, and then another aspect here is that a lot of these inventors are actually unskilled. 
Um, we have a lot of clergymen, for example, who make major breakthroughs in very specific industries. Um, Edmund Cartwright is my favorite example. He's the one that just does the, um, the power loom, the mm -hmm. first automated loom. Um, now this isn't a particularly fancy affair. In some respects, it's powered. You know, the first ones are powered by oxen and then they're powered by water. And then later on, someone else develops how they can be applied to, with steam engines. Um, but this is a person who is ultimately just a clergyman. I've looked into his training and his background. There's really nothing to suggest that he would have become an inventor later on. When he was at university, he liked po poetry and you know, he became a member of the clergy. Like this is not that relevant. You know, a bit of English literature, the classics and some poetry does not an inventor make, but he's still able to find a way to invent. Partly it seems because he comes into contact with inventors. And then once he's starting to look out for things, if, if you want to invent something and you're unskilled, then you do one of two things. You either self-educate and just find what you can on the subject and try to solve the problem that you have, which I think, by the way, today is now easier than ever. Or you find skilled people to help you out with the specific bits that you need done that you can't do yourself. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that we, we end up seeing uh, going on there. And the last bit that's worth mentioning about inventors is that they come from extraordinarily broad backgrounds. So my sample has got, it's got men, it's got women, it's got Catholics, it's got dissenters and Anglicans, it's got Whigs, it's got Tories and liberals and conservatives and urban and rural and poor and rich and in the middle and everything mm. in between, right? So it seems as though anyone can be infected, so to speak, with this improving mentality, um, which again suggests that um, certain other you know, certain other explanations for why people become inventors may not quite work. That actually this is something that in some ways is blind to to the kind of characteristics of inventors. Um, where those characteristics do come in in important is it often determines the sort of things that they then end up improving. So you get someone infected with improving mentality. If they're already someone who's a woodworker, then maybe the first thing they, they're going to improve is their carpentry tools. So it'll have an impact that way, but then they might go on to other things and start, I don't know, getting interested in inoculation or vaccination or agriculture or gardening or something else that they then try to improve. Um, so that's one part of my answer there, which is that the, the way to think about invention is that it spreads from person to person. That um, And so this improve, the spread of this improving mentality is by far the most important thing going on. If we model the spread of invention as this sort of outbreak, and that leads us down, I think, some interesting, um, I think it narrows down the sort of things that we need to look at if we're going to look for our explanations. Right. And so part of it, I think, is, is that what happens in England in the late 60th, early 17th centuries is that due to basically a bunch of random accidents and various other kind of more small and kind of unexpected factors, English, or not even English inventors, inventors in England, a lot of them are immigrants actually, but inventors in England are especially good. They have a sort of added subculture, if you like, um, that is similar in some ways to today's openness about science, to things like um, open invention, to things like the maker movement and so on, where you've got this sort of pro-social, pro-sharing attitude. So even when they do keep secrets, they also on the one hand will reveal elements of their invention so that, so that it can spread. Right. Um, they like to publish, they like to help each other out, not just through you know, advice, but through funding. Um, there's a whole ecosystem, if you like, of inventors. They organize themselves informally into societies, sometimes much more formally um, in terms of creating lobby groups and then pushing for particular laws to be changed that will again, support invention more broadly 
and not just their particular interests. And that's something where I think England ends up having a slight edge over other mm. countries. It's not that there aren't inventors at the same time in the 17th, 18th centuries in France, in Italy, in Germany, in Spain, and so on, and even further afield. But England has the slight edge in many, many respects because its inventors are much more active in those ways, in terms of self-organizing, in terms of spreading these things. And so just to kind of give you a kind of broad sort of comparison, in the 16th century, you do have a lot of inventors who are quite secretive all over Europe, but that secretiveness kind of persists in the rest of Europe in a way that it doesn't in England. A lot of invention starts playing out in print and in public, um, partly, I think, as a result of, as I said, some kind of random accidents, which are things to do with, because, the English, because England was a bit of a backwater and its monarchs weren't particularly rich, Mm. The main sources of patronage aren't the monarchs. And so a lot of inventors are forced to look much for much broader sources of patronage. Um, so you end up with them involving a kind of wider set of noble elites and mercantile elites and other kind of you know, urban elites um, for support, which then creates this kind of deeper pool of support. That means that you know, even if the monarch lose, loses interest in invention, that even within England, there's still going to be sources of patronage you know, people who are going to fund their inventions, people who are going to fund their enterprises, um, people who are going to lobby on their behalf to get the, the monarch's ear. Um, to the extent that even some of the famous figures from these, from these periods, when you actually look at it, they've often in some ways inherited those interests from before. Um, someone like Francis Bacon, for example, you know, his first involvement with invention is that he inherits shares in the Company of Mines Royal which his father had been one of these noble elites who had been co-opted or political elites who had been persuaded to invest in a venture by a bunch of German inventors. And then that company continues to have an interest in pushing out the frontiers of technology. And so you end up with a lot of kind of successive generations of people kind of inheriting a pro-invention bias in some ways. Mm. It seems from when I'm listening to you, is it really about the individual inventors or is it more about something that Britain can be thought of as almost a Silicon Valley of, of a different century where, you know, this, this was, as you're saying, really an ecosystem. And it wasn't so much about the people themselves, but it was really about the fact that there were a lot of them in a specific area. And there were maybe some other um, uh, contextual factors that made it especially attractive to innovate in that area. Do you see that's being part of the explanation or, or is it really about something that happens in, in these people's heads? Yeah, so this is where I think in some ways people who've looked at my works will sometimes think that my explanation for the Industrial Revolution is that there is something specific about an improvement mentality that is specific to Britain. That's mm -hmm. absolutely not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the improvement mentality is something that I think is just, it's just a framework for understanding how invention works. Right, okay. Um, and, and that it should narrow down the options of the kinds of things we should be looking at. Now, the reason I, st I started a lot of my investigation with individual inventors is that I think that's one of the main ways we can start to, again, narrow down potential explanations. You know, if we end up with a whole bunch of inventors who aren't patenting very much, then that suggests that the patent system is not the only thing that's important. And maybe it's right. not even that important at all, depending on how many of them are doing it. Right. Or, you know, this is how I kind of went through a lot of stuff was I tried to look at potential explanations that have already been offered and try to test it against the data set and say, OK, well, if you think skills important, well, hang on. At least a third of them are inventing in, in areas where they have no formal training whatsoever. And by the way, formal training, they're including what their father's professions were, just in right. case that would have had an impact, you know. So even trying to 
cast the net as wide as possible with finding problems like this. Um, again, you know, if, if we're looking at patents, I think only about 60% of the database are patented. Mm. Um, but even then, the patents actually change over time in, in the way they work. Um, and the main thing I noticed really is that, yes, I think it is about the creation of ecosystem. The Silicon Valley of the 17th century is London. Now, when we think of the Industrial Revolution, we tend to think of the north of England, we tend to think of the Midlands. Um, those are the, and those definitely become much more important in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, but even then, mainly as the locus of production, but not necessarily of right. invention. Right. So a lot of the stuff is actually being invented by inventors in London who are then moving out to other places because of various you know, geographic advantages for it. So some mm. places do become hubs of their own, you know, Birmingham, absolutely. Um, Edinburgh certainly becomes, I think, from the beginning of the 18th century, thanks to a concentration of inventors within the university, becomes a particular hub. And also we get some really weird hubs, which I think, again, sort of speak to the fact that it's, it's like outbreaks of a disease in some ways. Mm where you know just some random little village in the in in rural somerset will end up with like five inventors and there's no one else around for miles um, again suggesting that they're kind of spreading it from person to person there now for some of those ones i have concrete evidence of them having contact with one another in other cases i don't and i can just see that there's a geographic hub um, that said you know i've got the evidence of them having direct contact for about 83 percent of the sample and that's like the one thing that I could find, you know, a vast majority of them having. And frankly, for the other 17%, these are just the people I know nothing about anyway. I mean, mm. for a lot of these inventors, I started with a name and a patent sometimes, not even a full name, like a surname or something or a date. And then I reconstructed their lives from scratch using archival sources and genealogical records and letters and correspondence and whatever I could get my hands on. Those 17% who are left over are the ones from my sample that I just couldn't find that much. Mm. you know really basic information for anyway so i suspect they also have that connection we just don't have evidence of it that at least it hasn't survived to us yet the interesting thing here is that we need to look at the individuals to work out what's going on but it's the individuals collectively mm. right so we need to look at their individual characteristics and then we're still sort of extracting or abstracting from those characteristics and saying okay but actually it's the ecosystem is what's important but ultimately, what creates those e that ecosystem is still the actions of those individuals. Right. right. So it's not necessarily that there's a particular individual and there's a sort of great man theory going on here where, I don't know, like Benjamin Franklin is the person responsible for yeah. setting up this society and for this lobbying and doing all this stuff. No, we've actually just got a whole collection of these people. You know, there are lots and lots of people who are responsible for not just the in actual physical inventions in some ways, or even, you know, service inventions, but, but actual innovations in the kind of industrial or technological sense, um, but also for, for the kind of social technology that's, go that's going into this, right? As I say, England is a bit better than everywhere else at, at copying or adapting or changing or even just setting up institutions for spreading invention further. Now, given the pandemic, no, I've, I've been using the virus analogy, by the way, for years and years and years, for about a decade now. So this is, I know it's inappropriate in some ways, given today's climate, but, you know, I think it's still helpful for understanding it. But given in, in some ways, you know, because people are now familiar with all of the, the terminology about the spread of things, you know, in some ways, England's R number goes up. Mm. Like the spread goes up for, for, for exactly the same reasons that spread will go up in, 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 a, in a real life setting is that I used to say that the difference between, you know, if we think of the, 
the inventors as being carriers is that in Britain, they started going around coughing in each other's faces, mm. right? They were actively trying to spread the improving mentality, um, partly because they needed to, as I said, the sources of patronage are a bit restricted. Um, and partly also due to you know, other, other factors that are going into how it's working there uh, and the way that things change over time. Um, so in the early 17th century, for example, to move us further from the 16th, they actually, in some ways, inventors have become too successful at getting royal support. They start using patent monopolies, which are sort of deals in the early days with the monarch, where you're given them a temporary monopoly over a certain field in, in response, uh, in, 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 in exchange for introducing a particular technology, sometimes from abroad, sometimes for inventing it yourself. Um, but it's really a kind of tool of industrial policy in some ways and often tied to immigration where it'll mm -hmm. often be a foreigner saying give me kind of denizenship rights or citizenship rights protection from the local population as well as this monopoly and then we're talking and, and I'll, I'll move and i'll bring over the secrets that i've gleaned from you know muremberg's um metal workers or from italy's or venice's glass workers or or i don't know the Constantinople's leather working, you know, that these are kind of concrete examples, perhaps. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. And in some ways, they become too successful at getting these monopolies, and the monopolies are often being upheld, even kind of in a sort of corrupt way by the monarch, um, to the extent that innovation actually sort of gets a bad name right. for itself and is seen as a tool of absolutism. Um, and a lot of this is sorted out in, in the English Civil War. And in, during and in response to the English Civil War, that's when you then again have the inventors sort of seeing that they have this PR problem and working out that they need to find much broader based ways of supporting invention, where mm. you know, the Royal Society comes out of, you know, there's a reason it's founded in the 1660s straight after the English Civil War. There had actually been attempts before the war to try and get similar things um, set up. Um, but it's, again, part of trying to have a bit of monarchical involvement, but actually to spread things out a bit more, have, have uh, sometimes it's about emphasis on non, almost non-profit kind of motives and trying to make sure that it, everything doesn't appear as though it's just some crazy scheme being dreamed up by some mm. at the expense of taxpayers and the public uh, good and so on. It seems that um, your argument, obviously, about why or what made Britain so maybe the frontier or the, the vanguard um, economy, I suppose, relatively early on, is quite a bit different from um, most accounts, I think, of, of that phenomenon. As you, as you can see, right, there have been innovators in a lot of different uh, places of the world and a lot of different times. Is it not the case that I think uh, Asimoglu and uh, James Robinson, I think most famously make this case that it was really about incentive. You had, for whatever reason, in the UK, You had a situation where innovation was incentivized, the economy or the political system became more open to innovation, and it was no longer the case, you know, that strong guilds, for example, would um, effectively kill you if you came up with some um, neat little gadget that would effectively put them out of work. To what extent right, do you so, think that is important? So here's the thing. When you, boil, when you look into the details of those institutional changes, mm -hmm. nearly every time, in fact, almost every every time there is an inventor behind them <laughs> so there's the, the why do the guilds you know let's let's not let's not question back a bit where do english patents come from right they come from foreign inventors approaching the english monarch and say this is the way things are done in venice can i have my patent too mm. right they copy the venetian system and adapt it to to english circumstances 
In many ways, it's actually a little bit almost predatory, right? So you've got German bankers trying to come in and take over the entire English um, copper industry or create it, the English copper industry, so that they have a monopoly over, a European monopoly over copper um, and trying to exploit these poor, silly English people. You know, it kind of, it's almost like uh, the later colonialism that you see in reverse, mm. um, where England is the developing nation that's being exploited by a much richer kind of group of multinational interests and moneyed interests from abroad. Um, but a lot of these invent a lot of these sorry institutional changes are coming from inventors. They're coming from their lobbying, right? Mm. The patent system is a response to lobbying, right? It seems when we look back at just some of the basic kind of um, documentation as though some politician just had this great idea and they start implementing it. No, I mean William Cecil, who's the person responsible for a lot of the early patents. He's too busy with fighting France and wars of religion and all this other stuff to actually be coming up with these sorts of things. This is a this is it's a, it's a response to to a supply that was already there. And one of the interesting things about England in this period is that in the 1540s, 1550s, England is almost on its knees in some ways. You have a lot of plagues, you have a lot of famines, you have trade crises, you have the disruption of the main foreign market of Antwerp, you have um, diplomatic isolation, you have religious isolation because they've just become angry, they've broken with Rome, nearly all of their massive, massive, massive powerful neighbours are angry Catholics, you know, they, they have a lot of problems, and one thing I've noticed is that there had already been a lot of inventors who were trying to get support from English monarchs, who were trying to push for things like privileges, and they're, they're just not getting very far until these crises happen, so you end up with a sort of it's not that necessity is, is the mother of invention. Sometimes when I say this, that's the immediate thing that springs to people's minds. No, it's that, it's that crises are a catalyst in this way. Mm. So you already had a pre-existing supply of inventors, and it's often even the same individuals or their families and so on, um, who had been trying for a while. And then the crises happen, and in the context of the crises, they, 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 they don't let it go to waste. To, to use a famous term, right? They don't let these crises go to waste and they really take advantage of it to get within the elites of the monarch's good books, to get ah. their support politically uh, and also financially. Um, so, you know, with the patent system, that's the case. With the, with the founding of the first joint stock companies, um, that's the case. So the Muscovy Company is the very first, it seems, in the world. Um, that's actually used to leverage a patent um, that had been given originally in the 1490s and is then rewritten and kind of reissued in the 1550s by an immigrant inventor called Sebastian Cabot. Uh, he's not really an inventor, he's a discoverer, but um, in some ways the, the lines between discovery and invention are extremely blurred in those days. They're kind of the same thing. You invent a trade route. <laughs> um, uh, Francis Bacon, when he talks about the invention of the, of the, of the clock, and, of, and the discovery of the Americas uses exactly the same word in, in medieval Latin. It's invenio wow. or inventio, um, so within the same sentence. So they're kind of the same thing in those days. So you've got this discoverer who's leveraging a pattern using that way. And then when they've, when they've created this new institutional format, which ends up being extremely effective later on, you know, joint stock companies become some of the basis of a lot of you know, later technological improvements, they then start approve, uh, it, they start applying it sorry to to mines to other metallurgical um, aspects you've got the company of mines royal you've got the com company of mineral and battery works uh, much later so you have the levant company i think is very briefly uh, a joint stock although it later becomes a, a regulated company 
the East India Company is another example of a joint stock company that really takes off um, in the mid, well, it's founded in the 1600s, but is really takes off in the mid 17th century. Um, these institutional formats only come about because of the lobbying of, of inventors. So this is a lot of what I've been working on is trying to show how it's, I think all of that stuff is really downstream of the kind of thing that I'm talking about, which is this kind of pro-social subculture that starts to, starts to emerge here. I have two questions here. Maybe I should ask them separately. Uh, so the first question is, listeners might be skeptical to what extent what you call an improving mentality really matters to try to explain the, the increase in, in wealth uh, that you're describing over the last 250 or 400 years. Because, I mean, you, you make the point in some of your writing to say that, you know, everything could be better. But the question then that some people may ask is like, what, has that not always been the case? You know, haven't people always tried to improve things? Why wouldn't you want to improve things? Isn't it maybe the case, you know, that uh, there is something to the... Um, Asimoglu Robinson story, because usually people may not be all that open to innovation for a variety of reasons, especially when I speak to people who aren't economists or um, historians or political scientists, they usually assume that, you know, why wouldn't everyone be in favor of innovation, right? But at the same time, they're also very convinced that, that automation is going to destroy all jobs. The way I think, sometimes I'm asked about Luddism and, kind right. of, you know, is Luddism an important thing? Are these, are these blockages important? From what I've never actually seen a kind of blanket um, opposition to technology. You where haven't? It's all technology. I don't think, I, the only thing I can think of is in recent terms, maybe kind of some aspects of the green, the, the really radical aspects of the green movement, where they want to, or like kind of Pol Pot level, everyone should return to the farms and we should kind of deconstruct all of these technologies. Um, I can't think or kind of a really radical degrowth platform, which I think only really starts to emerge in the 60s, 1960s. I can't think of anything that's even close to that because nearly every time when you actually dig into the details, opposition to invention is usually very specific, right? right. Taxi drivers love iPhones right. a lot of the time. Well, they have iPhones or they're going to use a lot of other technology, but they hate Uber, mm. right? With good reason. Right, because they've you know invested a lot in getting these licenses and so on, and something's come along and said, no, 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 we're not going to, we're just going to completely undercut that and, and go against those existing interests. I mean, this actually sort of comes to the point I was trying to make earlier, which is, you know, why is it that England ends up with weak guilds? Mm. Well, it's actually because the inventors weaken it so much with all these special right. exemption monopolies that they petition the crown for. Right? Who are the main opponents of monopolies? It's guilds mm. because they have monopolies of their own. And there are pre-existing interests that are going into that. And often, you know, sometimes the inventors are founding guilds of, of their own, but it's, again, it's a very industry-specific thing. So I don't think, you know, actually one thing I've been looking into even just the past few days has been whether or not the Ottomans actually banned the printing press. Um, it's a very, 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 I mean, it's actually mentioned in actually Robert Robinson, interestingly. Yeah. There are two laws in 1483 and 1515. Uh, there's actually no solid evidence of these two laws. Um, we hear about it from a French cosmographer in, in the 1580s, and we don't know where he's getting it from, but he's a very famous plagiarist and coming up and making things up. I suspect it's probably got a bit of truth, but we don't know the actual specifics of what those laws actually said other than what he's reported. Mm. Uh, and we know that there were lots of exceptions to it, that, for example, it seems as though, you know, that there were a lot of printing presses set up by Jews and Armenians and Greeks within the Ottoman Empire, but then some of them got into trouble, some of them didn't. Um, mm. 
is it until 17 and you know is it until the 1720s that the first arabic press is set up i've now started to find a few bits digging into this where maybe there are a few arabic presses at least arabic script presses maybe not arabic language presses mm. a bit before that in 1706 and so on but regardless when you dig into these details it often turns out to be a bit apocryphal um, mm. about there being solid bands on stuff you know we often read about chinese emperors saying you know off with this person's yeah. head for coming up with something this stuff is either very specific to a particular technology. You know, the Chinese um, bureaucracy did, for example, um, specifically suppress um, people who would um, come up with astrological calendars for the very, very good reason that if you come up with a new calendar, a new calendar is usually associated with a new emperor, with a new regime. So you want to, you want to suppress specific things, perhaps, um, but not in a kind of general, we're going to suppress all the technology kind of sense. Now, I think this is ultimately where my model is maybe counterintuitive to people and people will really question it, which is that I'm saying, if you haven't come into contact with the improving mentality, you're probably not going to be an inventor. You're probably not going to improve things. Now, this is absence a very difficult thing to prove. It's nigh on impossible. So in mm. a sense, I'm kind of asking people to trust me on this. Um, <laughs> But and I, mean, I, think, I think it's actually the same way methodologically from the other perspective, which is that most people, or at least most economists, are used to thinking of things in terms of constraints. Right. So it's not that there's an absence of invention, it's that there are these lots of budding inventors. And if we just lift constraints on them, then all of this invention right. will spring forth. And I'm saying, well, you can do that. But if there's actually no underlying pre-existing supply of inventors, nothing's going to happen mm -hmm. or very little's mm -hmm. going to happen. And I think there's a lot of evidence of that, which is that if you look in the distant past, there have been very, very good, there have always been incentives to improve things, and yet people haven't always taken them. Right. Right. So there often is an incentive to do something, or to put it another way, you know, the response to the English crises that I mentioned, these plagues and famines and so on, you know, often the, 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 the main response to a crisis is, is that people just grin and bear it. Right. If there is a plague, how often do people try to come up with actual remedies to the plague? You know, in the distant past, a lot of people just died, you yeah. know, or they just tried to take mitigating effects that they were aware of. They weren't like trying to launch whole new science research programs to solve the problem. Interesting. Okay. When people had famine, were they actually looking at agriculture techniques to improve it? Now, there's often a lot of adaptation according to known methods in the past, but actually experimenting for for the first time with new things. You know, this is again why I don't like the phrase necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. Necessity is usually the mother of nothing. It's just, <laughs> the, it's just the mother of more necessity, of just the same necessity, right? People tighten their belts yeah. most of the time. Yeah, exactly. um, again, so if you look at England, it has these trade crises. Now England had gone through a lot of trade crises in the middle ages, but in the, significantly in the 1540s, they respond to the trade crises by sending off ships wastefully in search of a Northwest Northeast passage right, mm. to China. Like, that's crazy. That's something that only an inventor or a discoverer is going to, like, try to make you do. Right. So to take these really bold, innovative responses to crises, that's, I think, you know, and again, I've looked at the detail of this. There were a lot of explorers, including that same explorer, Sebastian Cabot, who've been trying to get these projects through for ages, but it's only in the context of the crisis when he finds the right wording, he finds the way, the right lever point to convince mm. elites that these things really start to take off. You know, as you say, you know, necessity is extremely constant. And I would say I wouldn't be surprised if invention has been extremely constant. Innovation has been extremely constant. But maybe uh, commercialization 
or diffusion of those things have, has been uh, the, the big uh, turning point of the last couple hundred years. And I would um, like to know what your thoughts are on maybe there is an element of uh, language potentially, right? I know you, you mentioned the um, Kears, like Joel Mokir's arguments about the um, Republic of Letters, I think is what mm -hmm. it's called, right? Um, do you think that the printing press potentially um, also contributes to this, right? So I would be extremely surprised, you know, if I went back a thousand years from now, right? The people who ran into some sort of problem, you know, on the field, on the farm, that they, they didn't try to come up with new ways to try to uh, ultimately make their lives a little bit easier, right? But those inventions never travel very far, I would imagine, right? So, so I is that possibly one of the barrier points? Yes, uh, probably. Now, I'm a bit undecided on the printing press in some ways. Um, I go back and forth. I haven't, yeah, it's, it's it, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I suppose, that printing presses have been in England for a little while, but print culture really starts to get going around the same time. Mm. Um, but again, it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could print lots of rubbish, right? <laughs> like, it took, it still took a lot of pre-existing inventors to publish really interesting stuff. So, mm. you know, it's Robert Record, This is an innovative mathematician. Okay, I'll give you the biography, right? And then you can decide. This is the guy who publishes the first major books in English on mathematics, right? There'd, I think, been one, one kind of arith arithmetic book in the 1520s, but in the 1540s and 50s, this is the guy who starts publishing, and I would say creating the market for mathematical books in England, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is that he starts publishing these kind of basic explainers um, how to do arithmetic, how to do geometry. He, you know, the first proper translation of Euclid comes a few years later, this is you know, basic geometry. He actually does a kind of base, more basic and kind of more tailored to, to a, a common readership explainer, kind of the kind of Euclid for dummies version, you know, a few years before that. Um, and then you end up with him, with him then having all of these follow-on books where he's trying to create almost a whole course of a, a, a program of study. Now, who is this person? Okay, he's a physician, that's his main job, but what's he famous for? Well, he's the person that invents the equal sign. Interesting, it's quite a funny story because he, this actually one of my favorite labor-saving inventions, he gets so bored of writing is equals to that he uh -huh. comes up with a symbol that will save the labor of writing it out. Now, that's interesting to me. A lot of people will just write things out, right? Like that, that attitude to, mm. to, to changing things and trying to find a slightly easier way of doing things is I think quite unusual. And I've noticed this today as well, that the improvement mentality is extremely common. And I think this is again, part of the challenges in trying to convince people of this, of this notion that if you don't have it, you're not gonna do it, is that invention is so common today that we take it for granted. It is extremely dispersed. It is extremely, common right to the extent that you know we even mock some elements of it like when you have a hipster coffee shop or something they get mocked for being so out there and trying to improve coffee or trying to right. improve a customer experience like that is improvement that they're trying to do, they're trying to improve the service there mm. now maybe it's going to be expensive at least to begin with but you know actually they're feeding into a gradual improvement of things that we take to be quite minor but if we multiply that across all industries then we've got the kind of acceleration improvement that we started seeing in the, in the 16th, 17th centuries, right? So we, we do observe that there is this kind of really continual and massive big start to improvement in this period. Now, to the extent that it's connected to the printing press, yes, I guess to a certain extent, people who want to spread ideas are given this radical new tool. Right. 
But I think, again, it's just a tool. It's a prior invention that is then adapted to this purposes. And they would have found other ways of, of doing similar. And they did try to find other ways of doing similar. Right? It's not just that they're establishing this vibrant print culture. You know, London and the Netherlands become especially vibrant for mathematical texts or texts on navigation to an extent that's not seen in Spain and elsewhere, even though Spain had the initial advantage and was the kind of, you know, the Iberia, Portugal and Spain were the main places where a lot of these navigational improvements had originally come from. You know, it's the English adopting Iberian navigation techniques that gives them this massive um, lead later on, but it's that, you know, this, the Iberians had a very secretive approach, very regulated approach, which actually the English try to copy, but they can't get support from the monarch. And mm. so they end up doing it in public. Right, so they end up having to publish everything and trying to form a movement around things. And I, th I think it's that social organization that, uh, that is in, in many ways more important. I, I, and here's another point I'd like to make, which is that a lot of our records survive in, because of printing. Right. Um, and so sometimes I feel like we, we end up being a bit biased towards print because it's actually what's the source of everything that we're reading. And we forget that sometimes there's a real world beyond print in the same way that, you know, we forget there's a real world beyond Twitter or something. Um, right. When you get like really engaged in a debate or something. Um, and yet, you know, so uh, uh, an example of that would be, I've recently become a bit interested as part of this research project in, in patent specifications. So originally, if you were to patent something, you would simply introduce it to the country and either the industry takes off or it doesn't. Mm. So you might often have a kind of use it or lose it clause where if the industry hasn't taken off, the monarch reserves the right to, to give the patent to someone else. Or if you haven't made enough money, um, then it might come into that respect because often the monarch in the early days would actually take a cut of the profit right. or even a cut of the revenue. Um, so you had to be making a certain amount of money to, 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 to get the patent. It's again, these quid pro quo, slightly really, I mean, today they'd be considered completely corrupt deals. Um, but specifications, this idea of having a written document where you describe exactly what your improvement is, that starts to only really appear in the 1710s. Um, so uh, okay. you know, quite a lot later. So patents were often without any content in the sense that they would just be you know, a patent, a monopoly on this industry or a monopoly on this whole thing rather than starting to specify things and record them. Now, again, I think that starts to come about because you've got inventors who are lobbying to create a system that's going to end up actually spreading invention further. And that's even later, even when you do have specifically patents um, with specifications emerging in the early 18th century, then they only start to become really useful to the country as a whole when you start to get other inventors. And again, these are other inventors, not just random people who start publishing journals and newspapers and so on that are going to actually put those specifications in print for everybody to read, not just for you to pay a fee mm. to the chancery and get to your own copy and have to look at it. Um, so there's a really interesting paper that came out recently. Um, so Gary Cox at mm. um, Stanford has a great paper oh, showing yeah. that before you, you end up with the publications um, of these patent specifications, there seems to be an effect, a localized effect on invention within the environs of London itself because oh, these really? are the people who can most easily go and go to chancery um, and they can get these copies written out for them and they can get the, uh, they can then learn from those, those improvements and then make their own improvements upon them as well. Um, so, yeah, so, so I've been looking into specifications. I think that's part of the story, um, but also I think part of the reason you didn't have specifications beforehand is because there seem to have often been public demonstrations. 
So you oh, would okay. have a patent monopoly, but there is a publication element. It's just not publication in print. It's publication wow. in the visual worlds that we inhabit. Mm. You know, for listeners, I guess they're not actually going to see any video here, but I'm kind of <laughs> waving my arms around at the room. Exactly. That, you know, there is a real world out mm. there beyond print. And a lot of the time, it seems as though there's a sort of hidden kind of sharing that's going on there as well. That there's not necessarily the formalization in print of these sharing institutions. Um, so what's striking to me is how often that's taking place too. Now, I think you made a very, very perceptive, perceptive point though, that there are often inventors who are doing things in private and they're coming up with improvements or coming up with new techniques um, and they're passing it on quite secretively or quite privately. And actually the early adoption of the Baconian program is very much like that. Mm -hmm. That it's about finding these hidden existing treasures and preserving them for all of posterity versus allowing them to die off. Um, and I think, yes, print has a big part of that, but also, that, I mean, that could be done through manuscripts and copying manuscripts and you know, doing it that way. But I think, yes, maybe print, again, as a tool is extremely important for that sort of preservation of things. And then almost accidentally, they end up not just testing all of the old knowledge and preserving all of the old knowledge, but actually developing new knowledge on top of what they already, they already uh, believed. So, you know, the Baconian movement in some ways is a kind of mass testing program for mm. all of the existing things that we already knew or looking at all of the existing right. stuff and trying to work out whether or not it's actually correct. So they're still saying in the 1650s when they're coming up with the ideas for the Royal Society, you know, they're saying we should be looking at all of astrology and looking at every single book and you appoint a few people that's going to read absolutely everything and work out what's right, what's wrong, and let's put everything to the test. So experiment, you know, this word experiment we have this idea of what an experiment looks like based on how we've developed it. But when we look back at it, we have to be careful with presentist bias here and that experiment and experience mm. are kind of the same thing, right? In, in, in the 17th century, in the early 17th century in particular, it takes on this extra meaning as experimentation develops and becomes more sophisticated for sorting out truth from, from just random observation or sorting out you know insight from from data but but these two things you know in, in some ways you know people who are making experiments or just have experience of things are kind of looked down upon because they're just you know they don't it's like they don't have analysis they don't have that extra thinking about it uh, at least originally so it, this is really fascinating and i would uh, be curious to see to what extent um the uk or london or um whatever region it was exactly was the first one to really have this patent system where you were asking people to to exactly explain how the process works that they're patenting um because yeah, i think a good question yeah because i think like one of the main or I, mean, I think one of the main arguments or i think one of the most persuasive arguments in favor of or or that argue that patent systems are extremely crucial for innovation are because they make this point that you know um patents actually uh, give you a like a central register where you can access and see well what are uh, certain processes and how do they work exactly and then I can innovate on top of that right I can like yeah. look at how exactly this process works no matter where I am. The interesting other point that you mentioned though right is that it seems like location is extremely important. We we spoke about Silicon Valley. Uh, you made this analogy with people um, coughing on each other or literally being in in, in physical proximity. Right, that that's somehow important. Super spreaders. Um, exactly. <laughs> right. So I think one point that has been brought up repeatedly, interestingly, in the last year, where 
you know, for a lot of people working in universities or um, in, in, in uh, some industries working increasingly from home, people were saying, okay, well, this is the move of the future, right? Like this is going to stay remote. And I think a lot of people have made the point that, you know, if that was the case for a lot of um, uh, like advanced knowledge work and innovative work and uh, software and things like that, you know, a lot of these things would have been outsourced long ago, mm -hmm. right? But there is really an important element to being in the same uh, area with someone else, right? It's really about ultimately creating ecosystems, right? And there, you know, physical proximity really matters. So to what extent do you think this is an important thing to take away from the British story, the story of British invention? You say that almost all of them had correspondence, contact with each other. Uh, to what extent is literal physical uh, proximity important? Yeah, it's a really good question, especially in the current with the current um, challenges. So it seems as though, so based on what I know from the work of Matt Clancy, who's done quite a bit of work on this, um, it seems as though in some ways that serendipity effect, the kind of mm. pro-innovation effect that you get from, from, from the water being cooler. closer, um, from proximity, that has been weakening over time thanks to the internet. So it looked as though when a lot of studies were done in the early 2000s and maybe the early 2010s, that because all the technology was still actually not that developed or hadn't been that much adopted, it looked as though there was still a major effect for proximity and in, in, in its favor in terms of invention, in terms of productivity improvements and so on. That serendipity effect, I think, has weakened. Hmm. Um, and partly that's also as a result of our superior technology for spreading invention. You know, sometimes, Sometimes, even in my data set, it looks as though you've got inventors who are being inspired by reading about other inventors, where it's mm. a kind of indirect form of inspiration. That's kind of rare. I don't think there's that many, um, but it still seems to happen. Or you know, maybe actually behind that is that the first point of contact I found, or potential, potential inspiration I found, is this kind of reading contact. But actually, there was an inventor who gave them the book. You know, I don't or recommended it to them. I don't know. You know, there's. There's maybe bits of information that I'm lacking there that's kind of just absent from the, from the evidence there. So, yes, maybe there is a kind of major effect there. That said, I think, you know, today you might be inspired by stuff online. You know, think about how most people get into any hobby. Right? I think, you know, if we treat invention like a hobby that spreads, then, yes, proximity, I think, will make a difference. You know, you're more likely to do something like collect coins or stamps if you have a relative who does that or you went to school with someone who did or you have a friend who does that now to the extent that friendships and so on are now conducted online you know maybe there's there's more appetite for the spread of those sorts of um, things through 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 other channels um or at least there's more potential for that to happen so um, i think i think the effect is weakening I don't think it's completely gone, though. I think you're right that there's still something to be said for proximity. Um, but to how much proximity is required, that's another, that's another aspect here, right. is that, you know, do you need to spend 24-7 with these people? Mm. Or is it actually fine just to have a few very specific and concrete points of contact? Um, I don't know. I suspect that it has to be somewhat sustained. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's difficult to be an invent the only inventor in the village, so to speak. <laughs> That's true. Um, whereas I think if you even have a small group going, then that is, a, is not just a source of, 
well, it's a source of a lot of things. It's not just a source of inspiration. It's a source of support financially, emotionally, right. socially. I mean, it has a lot of other things going on with it, especially considering one of the aspects about, you know, in terms of policy implications, one thing I like to talk about is a sort of funnel, which is that a lot of policy interventions focus on the very end of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel, which is people who are already inventors and then trying to tinker around with their incentives. Now, actually, we need to start with the people who are not inventors. Right. Of those, some of those people will come into contact with existing inventors. Of the people who come into contact, some of them will be inspired with the improved mentality. Um, we don't exactly know which ones will, which ones won't. Of those that have the improved mentality in some sense and they think of room for improvement for things, only some of those will actually end up putting those mm. things into practice. Of those who put things into practice, only some of them are going to do it successfully. And of those successful ones, only a few of them will have heard of or will have or will be spreaders themselves and then kind of feeding back into the top of the funnel. Now, I think those upper bits of the funnel are the most important places to be to be focusing on. And that's where really kind of broad things like the prestige we accord to inventors, the visibility of inventors within our culture, within our society are extremely mm -hmm. important. And maybe actually in a kind of basic level in the same way that a pandemic will spread more readily in a city when you have more dense people, that proximity is an important thing there too. Definitely. On the other hand, right, I mean, now we're recording this um, conversation over Zoom, right? We're not in the same country. And this conversation, you know, is going to be the absolute super spreader in the, in the sense <laughs> that, you know, literally everyone around the globe is going to be able to, to listen to this. So to what extent does local policy really matter for, for those things you just mentioned, right? As we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, you are uh, the, the head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network. So what policy levers really are there for, for governments on whatever level to really influence uh, the level of innovation that occurs? And is innovation really something that occurs locally? today is is that really how we should think about it i have some follow-up questions to that but yeah if you if you have yeah, some so thoughts I'll start with, is it important for a, a, a national government to concern itself with inventor invention or even a local government to concern mm. itself with invention i think yes and the reason for that is that in an ideal world we sort of want to race to the top that we mm -hmm. want governments to be competing with one another for to attract the best inventors around the world now as to where they end up, I guess from a global global level, that maybe doesn't matter so much in most cases, except mm -hmm. for strategic goods or something. You know, I know there's this whole kind of industrial policy battle about where right. all of the silicon chips are going to get made, and, and that kind of you know, there's maybe there's security um, implications for certain technologies, but in general, I don't think it matters a huge amount. You know, where it doesn't matter where our London or our Birmingham or our Silicon Valley. Um, mm. ends up being as long as there is one and right? we, so trade, we want there yeah. to be a, a place that can be that place for the world um, but we also I think want to have a lot of places wanting to have ones of their own or to be the next person the next country or the next city or next borough or whatever county to to be the place that becomes that because I think through that kind of policy adaptation we start to see a you know we start to see a global improvement as well, right? So if you have a place that is that outdoes Silicon Valley at being Silicon Valley and becomes the new one, right? It's now set a new standard and has raised the standard. And if that becomes the new global center for invention, that place is now gonna be the one that, you know, sets, you know, is then the, the model to be improved upon. Right. 
right? And any, any policy tweaks that they've made are likely to be improvements on the status quo, mm -hmm. right? So if, and if they're an improvement on the status quo, that means we've improved Im improvement and we've improved its global rate, right? So that's one aspect. And the second aspect there is that, you know, a lot of this is, again, I think one of the reasons why we mistime the Industrial Revolution, which is that we focus on the effects of inventions and not on the inventions themselves. So, you know, even if you did think that 1760s to 1830s is the crucial period, well, there's a massive lag in those days between when you invent something, when it actually starts to be right. applied, let alone applied nationally. Right. So if you have got, you know, an improvement to agriculture, let's say that improves efficiency by 100 percent, it's going to take your your at your effect on the economy overall is going to be much, much less than that the first year. It'll be, I don't know, maybe 0.1 or something. It might take 100 years for the full 100 percent effect to be felt and for that to have translated into economic growth figures. So we also, I think, you know, associated with invention is or innovation is actually taking places, taking inventions from other places and applying it locally. Right. And that adaptation of inventions, you know, is, I think, in some ways, improvement of its own. Um, now, are all of those people improving things also, do they count as inventors? I think kind of maybe, you know, we should mm. maybe we should maybe value them in a similar way. You know, that, and actually, when we look at countries' experiences at doing this, it's actually bloody hard. Mm. Right? There's a reason that we focus on the Asian tigers, because those are the countries that were especially good and adapting and adopting and then not just ado adapting and adopting but then becoming the global leaders in certain industries so Absolutely. you know that is itself in a sense um innovation and so these are a lot of countries japan and taiwan and and, and south korea and so on these are places that are now having had these extraordinary miraculous growth rates are now at the cutting edge of a lot of technologies and actually pushing the technological frontier forward now, maybe the policies you require for catch-up versus pushing it out are slightly different. I can, I, I suspect that's the case. Um, but I think at root, you've got, you, it, it's a technological story that's going on there. So, and I mm. think it's a local story that's going on there. You know, we want everybody in China to have the billions and billions of people in China and India and all of Africa to have the same living standards as in the United States and or mm -hmm. elsewhere in Europe. I say elsewhere in Europe. In, in, in Europe, you know, <laughs> we kind of think of them often Kind of similarly, but you know, we want people to have the, the global stand, the global gold standard of, right. of living standards. We want that to be everywhere. We want that itself to be improving too. Um, and again, that's a local story as well. So yes, I think it does matter. Um, now, as to what we can do about it, which I guess was your second question. Again, I, I would focus on the funnel, which right. is that a lot of the time we have a lot of innovation policies that really just look at people who have already become inventors, and it's and we try to. We try to direct them to certain industries or to certain pro problems through prizes or through incentives, or we try to tweak patents. You know, nobody, nobody became an inventor because of the patent system, right? Nobody, I, I like nobody was like read about the patent system was like I'm going to become an inventor now. Mm. No, they were inventors or they had an idea, they came up with improvement, and then. They were like, oh, there's this whole patent system that I can maybe protect it with, or I can, you know, I can, I can, I can adapt things that way. Yeah, patents are important. And I agree with you. I think the main thing is not the incentive effect, it's the disclosure effect. Right. It's that patents make sure they, they incentivize us not to invent, they incentivize us to make our inventions public. Mm. That I think is by far, by far the most important thing about them. And it's actually 
almost always been the main reason for them as well, um, historically. Um, and so specifications and or even before that, you know, when they had these things associated with them, like you have to make a certain amount of money or you have to actually introduce this this thing here or you know there's a reason there used to be uh, seven or 14 or 21 years in England in the early days that's because that's a duration of a pre of an apprenticeship oh really so if you have okay. a 21 year patent that's because you're expected to teach three generations of apprentices mm. to teach the locals how to use your technology um, that seems to be because actually the original the very very first ones use the 10 years that that were present in in Venice Mm. Uh, or multiples of 10 which are the most common patterns in venice so you know there's there's a there's a there's a real interesting pattern going on there where disclosure has been the most important thing so yes getting that right is important but i i think we should be focusing on how do we make invention more visible how do we make it more valuable you know i'm working on a paper for for the entrepreneurs network right now arguing that we should have a, a new order of chivalry in england um, okay. just like the, so at the moment we've got one called the order of the british empire which is a little bit problematic even if it's just its name but it's it's the main thing that people get for you know achievement is they mm. get an mbe which is a member of the british empire or they get an obe order of the british empire they get officer of the british empire or they get a cb or they get a knighthood within that mm. order and you know if you become a knight that's a big deal you know people take that seriously it's you know it's, it's a title no, yeah. it's you know regardless of what it's for people take it seriously even if there are a few bad apples who you know, mm. make it seem worse than, than it should be, um, those people either get them revoked or, or you know, still getting one is going to be a big deal for, people, for your friends and family and will raise the status of that activity. And I, you know, I've been crunching a number of, on these, very, very few of them, very few are given for invention, they're given for entrepreneurship, they're given for actually improving people's living standards in the kind of most bread and butter way. Right, charity obviously helps. Philanthropy is important, but people are receiving it for that. Even you know, if you're a successful entrepreneur, you get it for founding some charitable foundation, not for the actual stuff you did. That you know, maybe it just cheapened the price of bread by a penny. But right. cheapening the price of bread by a penny for 16 million people is a big, big, big deal. Absolutely. So honor, I think, is important. You know, we focus on monetary incentives. We should be looking at at, at social incentives as well, which has always been a part of the calculus going way back, um, but also in a kind of other way that we should encourage inventors to make themselves more visible. Mm. Um, usually I end a lot of um, whatever talk or whatever I, I, I give by saying, you know, if there's any inventors out there, entrepreneurs out there listening, make yourselves more visible, you know, get in, try to inspire others actively, try to work out how to, how to spread your mentality further. Um, even if you don't think about it in those terms, you know, inspiring others is extremely important. Um, so that kind of, the kinds of things that we've seen from generations and generations of people who've been inventing since the 16th, 17th century has to be done for today as well. You know, just because we had loads of publications, even if those journals are still going that were promoting invention, nowadays you need the YouTube version of it. You need to adapt things to the new modern circumstances. You know, one big challenge to technological change is the destruction part of creative destruction, right? Which is ultimately mm -hmm. a political challenge. We touched on this to some extent by saying that, you know, there is public aversion towards technological change at times. But importantly, there's also often very well-organized business opposition to technological change that cuts into the profits of existing industries. 
mm. right? Um, I suppose m- most sort of emblematically the um, sort of the very energy intensive or CO2 intensive energy industry. What are policy steps that you can t- to try to open people's minds to, uh, to, to innovation in that sense, right? Because often it is not necessarily the case that technological change makes everyone else, uh, everyone better off in the short term. I think you're, you're speaking very eloquently to the fact that the last 250 years have been an enormous success story in aggregate. But that does not mean, right, that there weren't some uh, people who were made significantly worse off, at very yeah. least in the short term. Right? So oh, the, I, think, I think politically, that's the big challenge, right? Like, how do you negotiate those processes? Um, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that. You know, what's interesting about most problems caused by inventions is that they're often solved by other inventions. Mm-hmm. So my favorite example of this, which I always meant, I love to mention it, is a guy called George Smart, who no one's ever heard of. Um, I even wrote his entry for the Oxford Dictionary National Biography and kind of reading one of these people I reconstructed their lives, you know. So George Smart was responsible for inventing a chimney cleaning device, which meant that we no longer had to send, you know, children as young as four Mm. chimneys to clean them and even to put out fires that might emerge in the flu. So, you know, that is an invention and actually a very simple one that people specifically drew attention to as social campaign. It's actually one of the things that I write about in my book um, on, on the Royal Society of Arts, which is that the Royal Society of Arts gets involved in this campaign to find a technological solution to this problem. In fact, the, their first hundred years, that's their main activity, is to take social problems and try to find technological solutions and then offer prizes for those. Now, mm. those prizes are partly about incentivizing people to work on it, but also they often recognize, I think rightly, that their role is often just drawing attention to the problem right. as a whole and saying that there could be a, a solution to them technologically. Uh, and what's interesting about that case in particular is that once this chimney brush, the scandoscope it's called, is invented, only then is it actually viable to find a political solution where because there's this device that you can use instead of children, you can start banning the use of children. Mm. So it, it unlocks a whole potential of political um, responses. Now, unfortunately, it takes actually decades for them to uh, and further improvements to the scandoscope by other inventors to actually get this stuff uh, pushed through, um, where you know they start to successively raise the the minimum age of, of, of chimney sweeps. But still, I think it's a really crucial example. In, in, and I think you know you mentioned the green movement potentially being anti-innovation. I mean. Look at some of the stuff that's probably going to solve a lot of problems today. You've already got a lot of people working on not just carbon capture, but on carbon removal from mm. the atmosphere. It seems as though there's been some very successful prototypes now being demonstrated, where if these things are going to get a lot of funding, that's going to have a major impact. Or, you know, there's been these dramatic changes in battery storage, in solar power in just the past few years, let alone decades, where the cheapness of solar, you know, is, is, is likely to, to completely just remove these problems, right? So sometimes, you know, sometimes we need political solutions to these problems. I think you know, something like saving the ozone layer by banning, mm. um, what is it, CFCs or something like that, I can't remember, or HFCs, I, 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 don't, I don't remember the, the details, but they banned, they banned certain things used in fridges in particular mm. um, that were causing the ozone problem, and we solved that politically quite simply so thankfully this was not something that was used in a whole load of industries that would be very costly to do but even with the very costly things like co2 which is emitted by so much of our economy 
worldwide. You know, we've, it seems as though we're on the cusp of, of finding solutions to that. So, you know, the, we want more innovation because hope, and, and if to the extent that we direct innovation, yes, we should be directing it to solve big problems. Um, and e even if those problems were caused by prior inventions in, in the first place, because once we've got the new technology, I think the, the genie's at the bottle. You then right. need to adapt. Um, and the only way to do that, I think, is through, through more innovation. Well, thank you so much, Anton. Uh, this was really interesting. And we'll love to have you on again sometime. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.